Hey, welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes, and as always, we're here to open up what God's Word has to say and figure out what that means for us, for who we are, and what God calls us to, as well as to who God is and what He wants us to know about Him. Um, and I, this semester, we've been going through the topic of dating, marriage, sexuality. We're starting to kind of land the plane here, and we're talking about uh, truths about sex tonight. Um, but I know that as we talk about this um, and especially also with the death of the young man tonight, that this can raise a lot of issues for us in our own lives. And so I want to say that if you need to talk to someone about this tonight, or about the death of this young man, or about um, the, the way that sex has impacted you in your own life, uh, please come and see me afterwards. Let's talk. Let's pray. I'm glad to listen. I, I really rather prefer to listen more than I speak, and maybe in that way you can feel heard and understood in some ways too. Um, but... All that said, that's what we hope for us tonight, and that's how we're approaching this tonight as well. So let me read the scripture, and uh, we'll get into this. Ephesians 5, 28 through 32. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Um, Y'all, so I'm from a small town in South Alabama, a place called Dothan, if you're ever interested in looking it up. And in this part of Alabama, we really only have two seasons. It's like hot and hotter. And it's, I'm serious about that. I didn't wear jeans until I was in college because we just didn't need them. But, uh, like, this is a pretty swampy place to begin with. Like, I mean, my hometown, like, 100 years ago, they pretty much just drained a swamp and built, built some buildings there. And so you can imagine that in this swampy place, that uh, if you have some hunting land like we did growing up, that when beavers get onto it, and beavers do what beavers are wont to do, which is to chew down trees and then build dams, that you're making a place that's swampy, even swampier still. And so these beavers got onto our hunting land at some point, when I was growing up, and they just kind of made it so swampy and murky and nasty that all the wildlife that we wanted to go in there and hunt just kind of got driven off. And so my dad really felt backed into a corner by these beavers. And so he, in, pre-9, that's right, in pre-9-11 Alabama, you could, you could buy dynamite with no prior convictions and a driver's license. And so that's what we did one Saturday. We go and we buy dynamite. And he, da- he takes me and my brothers out to the swamp where the beavers are at. And we walk out there into the, into the murk, into the mire of this water. And he takes some post hole diggers and we dig a hole. We duct tape the dynamite, drop it in, bury it, walk about 300 yards back, light the fuse, wait about two minutes. And then we hear, boom! And there's this huge explosion. There's like a mushroom cloud that comes up. And just a few seconds later, you feel like this kind of like fine mist like come down, like mud, water, some wood, probably a little bit of beaver, <laughs> just falling. And as a 12-year-old kid in Alabama, this was, this was amazing. And it probably led to some like other related fireworks incidents later on in my life. <laughs> but I, I say that because tonight we're talking about sex. And sex... <laughs> There's a one-to-one right here. Uh, <laughs> that sex, like dynamite, is actually really powerful. I mean, really powerful. And it can be used for great good, uh, to bring life, to bring healing, 
even, a, even as a reflection of divine love. But that like dynamite can also be used to destroy. That it can be used to clear out things that are terrible in your life. But it can also be used to kind of blow you up and hurt you in really profound ways. So last week we covered three myths about sex. That it's everything, that it's nothing, that it's the way to freedom. And tonight I want to talk about three truths about sex. That sex is good, sex is purposeful and powerful, and that sex is not just about sex. Sex is not about sex. So that said, with the power of sex kind of on the table, the goodness, the purposefulness, and the fact that it's not about itself, let's pray and we'll jump into this. Father, I pray that you'd be with us tonight. I pray that you'd help us to understand your word, that you'd help us to understand the ways in which sex is this profoundly important thing in our life, and yet it's this thing that doesn't point to itself, but it points beyond itself to your relationship to your church. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as your church, that you'd love us and care for us tonight through your word. We know that apart from your work, we can't do these things. We can't hear you. We can't know you. Lord, would you work tonight in our hearts? In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so sex is good. Y'all, when it comes to sex, I think Christians have often kind of approached this with fear. I don't know, maybe that's the way your parents approached it or um, your church or whatever. But if you really like, follow the Bible, what's the first command that God gives Adam and Eve? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Like, have sex and have lots of it. And this means that we can't just start with Genesis 3 with the fall, that we actually have to start with Genesis 2 where God makes sex and makes it really good. You see... I want to acknowledge here in the front end that sex has been used in lots of terrible ways. And we have to speak up about that. But that our voice as Christians can't just be one of kind of judgment and critique and gloom and doom. That what part of Christians have to do is proclaim the goodness of what God has made in this, this thing that he's handed to us. So if you follow the Bible, like things like Proverbs 5.19, where a father is giving advice to his son about being married and about avoiding sexual sin... His advice on this is to, is to let your wife's breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated with her love, right? Or one of the classic sex passages from the Bible is the woman from the Song of Solomon. She's totally in love with her beloved. She's given a detailed description of him as she works her way down. She says, His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. She's very into his eyes. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. So he's got great breath. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of, rods of gold, set with jewels. He's strong. And then if your translation is like mine, it will say something here like, his body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires, which doesn't really make sense. But biblical scholar Trimper Longman III, who's a good Hebrewist, uh, says that a better translation is that she's working her way down. She says, his abdomen is like a polished ivory tusk decorated with sapphires. Like, I'm not going to spell it out more for you than to say <laughs> that both the woman and her husband are very excited to celebrate the gift of sex together. Uh, Longman goes on to talk about this woman. He says, The role of the woman throughout Song of Solomon is truly astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins, because it's the woman, not the man, who's the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up this song, that she's the one who seeks, who pursues, who initiates. And to that we could add that she does so because she was made to do so. This is part of what it is for her to be made in God's image. You see, biblically, sex goes deeper than our bi biology, it touches on our deepest person. In other words, physicality is more than just the plumbing. But the reason that sex can be so glorious 
and so painful is because people are embodied spirits. You see, we're souls in possession of physical bodies, and so what we do with those bodies has a direct impact for either good or evil on our souls. And this is why Paul can quote Genesis and say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. This one flesh he's talking about is not just shared bank accounts, shared lives, shared social context, but it's a sharing of one another's bodies and their personhood. You see, behind the sharing is the word in Hebrew just to know, yada. That at the root of marriage is the desire to know someone deeply, intimately, personally. And so in the act of sexuality, we're literally exposing ourselves to that other person's knowledge. And not in some like passive way, because also in this process, we're pledging ourselves to this other person. To say, it's safe for them. It's safe for them to make themselves known to us. And y'all, we've talked a lot this semester about the longing for intimacy that everyone experiences. About how we all want to be known on the deepest level possible. That even in the places where we're sometimes uncomfortable to look at ourselves. And what the Bible is saying is that in the act of sex, within the safety of the covenant of marriage, we're letting someone in and telling the other person that it's safe for us to be let in as well. You see, in the act of sex with your spouse, you're affirming that all of those promises that you made on your wedding day are still true. Have you ever been to a wedding? They, like, they, like a lot of hardware, rings, dresses, someone in a, a black robe usually. And there's these huge promises that are made. It's kind of this fulfillment of that wedding ceremony. For richer or poorer, for better or worse, in sickness and in health. And finally, the doozy, until death do us part. Like huge promises. And for that couple, when they get married, every single week, they're buffeted from outside and from inside by a threat to those promises that they made to each other. And so God has given us this profoundly intimate way to recommit ourselves to one another and to those promises. To say, I know what I did, I know what I said, I know how tired you are, I'm tired too, but I'm still here for you. And you're still here for me. And in sex... We're pledging our souls to one another with our bodies. Like that's what that is. That you're pledging your soul to this other person with your body. And that's why sexuality outside of marriage is so powerful and so damaging because it's making promises that you can't deliver on. Though one of the first lessons of our sexuality starts with learning to respect the goodness and the power of sex. And part of that good power is that sex is a sign that you were made to give yourself away. That I'm all for you and you're all for me and we're in this together because we made these big promises. That we are one. One flesh. Not just shared bank accounts, not just shared home life, but one physical flesh. Body and soul. That's what sex is just basically. This takes me to my second point. That sex is purposeful. I'm going to give you three kind of illustrations or examples of this right here. There's a lady named Dana Gresh read an article for CNN recently, and it was entitled, There's Nothing Brief About a Hookup. And in it she wrote, this is a little bit longer, so bear with me, that just like the hippie culture found a pill that conveniently removed the inconvenience of pregnancy, today's hookup culture believes it's found a recipe for removing the inconvenience of emotion. Friends with benefits. Scientifically, though, she's using science, that's impossible. <laughs> Love it. We know that... 
that thanks to what neuroscientists have learned about a walnut-sized mass in the brain called the deep limbic system, follow me here, the deep limbic system stores and classifies odor, music, symbols, and memory. In other words, it's the place for romance, capable of processing a splash of cologne on your lover's neck, a particular iPod playlist, or a bouquet of red roses. And this is where she gets really technical, but hold on. A critical sex hormone is oxytocin. The chemical is released during sexual expression. A tiny dose is downloaded during intimate skin-to-skin contact, and a much bigger dose is released during orgasm. In fact, the only other time as much oxytocin is released as during orgasm is when a mother is breastfeeding her baby. The mother feels its release and is bonded to her child, and the baby's brain learns for the first time to enter into, pay attention here, relationship by connection. I'd say the chemical's job is to bond us for life. Y'all, do you hear what she's saying there? That there's part of your brain, part of your physicality that is bonding you for life to this person. It's bonding you in a deep way to another person in the act of sex. Do you remember the scene uh, that we talked about last week from the movie Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz? uh, Where he's kind of a player, they're friends with benefits, he's trying to pull back from this kind of casual romance with Cameron so that he can chase other women. And she kind of corners him. She yells at him in this really intense scene that when you have sex with someone, your body is making a promise whether you do or not. That she gets that. That that's what sex is supposed to do. And then getting theological, Tim Keller, the Pope of the Presbyterian Church, (laughs) says that this... (laughs) I said that out loud. Uh, (laughs) In the, act, in the act of sex and marriage, there's a drama being enacted that celebrates God's relationship with His church. Therefore, sex both embodies and seals our ability to commit ourselves to one another. There's something in the act itself which says, I'm with you profoundly, deeply, intimately. But at the same time, it also seals, with oxytocin in our limbic system, our ability to commit to one another. It both exhibits our love and it builds our love at the same time. Not just as a display, but also a solidification of our love. Y'all, if CNN, Cameron Diaz, Tim Keller, and Paul all agree on this one thing, you should at least consider it. (laughs) Let me say this, though. One of the great myths, I think this is one of the great myths, that the church has been guilty of is about sex, is is telling us that sex outside of marriage is never fun and you'll always feel guilty. And you know, the pastor in me is just like, oh, should I say this or not? I'm going to say it. Some of you know that this isn't true. Like, you've had sex, and it's been fun, and you don't feel guilty at all. And you're wondering, like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? I think this. I think you'll find that it'll be a long time before you lose those partners, kind of in your head. Why? Because sex did what it was supposed to do. It bonded you to another person or several other people. And as much as it saddens me to say this, but you might find yourself one day struggling to know how to commit to another person. Because in your sexual escapades, you've already committed yourself. Not once, but over and over again to someone else or multiple people. That for you, sex apart from the covenant of marriage has actually worked in reverse. They're either making you more able to trust and connect to a person. It's actually made you less able to connect. But this isn't just the sexually adventurous, is it? Like, this is why pornography and promiscuity are such terrible things. Because they ruin your ability to hold fast to one another. Just think about pornography and the guilt and the shame that arises from it. 
The part of what is so powerful about it is it's touching on your sexuality, but it's showing you something which is the opposite of what sex is supposed to be about. That rather than shared intimacy with another person, it's generally done alone. It's something that you reach for when you're oftentimes feeling lonely. That association that you make between your sexuality and that pornography will haunt you for a long time. And on some level, it will stain sex for you so that instead of something that I share and celebrate with the person who's closest to me, who's most for me, who's most with me in everything, it becomes something dirty that I do alone and I can't share. Do you see how incredibly anti-sexual in the truest sense of what sex is supposed to be that pornography is there? Now, I don't know about you, but the talk that I usually heard kind of growing up uh, when people wanted to help me deal with sexual sin was to say, well, your hormones are raging, and then we add like a lot of moralisms to that. Like, you're at an age where you can't do anything about this, but you really, 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 really need to try not to do anything about it. And that wasn't a huge help for me. I don't think that would be a huge help for y'all. Because most people who find themselves struggling with sex, I think, are thinking to themselves, like, this is inevitable. Many of us are kind of excusing this behavior. It's kind of putting it to raging hormones. And I don't want to downplay the embodied nature of sex, but there's more to this. And that's kind of my, one of my big points for tonight. There's more to this than pure biology. That in fact, it's for this very reason that while we tr- when we try to stop sinning sexually, it's so difficult to do. Because sex is such a good thing, which you are made for, which touches on your deepest physical and spiritual needs. Therefore, to do more moral application and just try harder really doesn't work. And we need to stop being surprised that it is such a struggle. Because there's something powerful moving inside of you in terms of what it means to be a man or a woman when you're touching on your sexuality. For some of you, you wake up the next morning, and even if you're in a committed dating relationship, you still feel dirty and unsafe. Because by the rules of dating, no matter how committed he is to dating you, he's still just dating you. Which means that by those rules, he can break up with you and leave tomorrow. And you know on a fundamental level that that is just incredibly unsafe for you. Or guys, you can live with the fantasy that drives sexual sin... That on some level inside of you, there's a man of that sort of significance that's worthy of those fantasies. That's worthy of all those people clamoring after him. The trouble is that there's no way to become that significant man through those fantasies. Do you see the problem there? That what porn is tapping into is not only your lust, but also this desire to be significant and worthy and lifted up on this profoundly deep level that sex was meant for. And yet, in tapping into that, porn hijacks the whole system and sends it kind of flaming off the clip to explode at the bottom. Maybe why it's so difficult to stop is that it's not just about your hormones. And I know that this isn't just a guy problem, because we can't just assume that lust is an issue for men only. We can't fall into the trap that women don't have a sex drive. Like That'd be contrary to the Bible, right? And Song of Solomon. Or that women never wrestle with pornography. Like By many statistics, they do. Or in a dating relationship that women are the ones who have to maintain physical boundaries while a guy's job is to push against those boundaries. Like, that's not fair at all. You see, for both men and women, sexual sin is offering something which you desperately long for, and yet at the same time is warping that longing and the potent energy that's there in really deeply painful ways. 
You see, there are powerful forces moving in us that extend beyond biology to the very purpose which we're made for. This is why I would suggest that most of the cures that we try to apply to our sexual sin, like this is the reason they fail so poorly. Because no amount of guilt or fear or shame can amend the problem of broken sexuality. That's like taking a burn patient to the hospital and saying the way to heal this person is more burns, right? Like, that's crazy, totally crazy. But we do that with our shame. Simply replacing the shame of sexual sin for the shame of failure and, ah, I did it again, I'll try harder next time, just does not work. Because shame begets shame. Next time I'll have the willpower to stop. How many more next times do you need before you realize that sheer willpower is not going to be the answer? That to start dealing with this, you're going to have to stop hoping that the law will make you a holy person. The sexual aspect of your life is far deeper than the physical act. And our journey to understand it, we have to understand about putting the pieces back together. And in doing that, we have to have a loving covenantal relationship. Just have something where someone sees us and knows us, deals with that shame by dealing with intimacy and knows us to our deepest core. Because that's the purpose of sex, that bonding, that healing. It satisfies that drive, but also makes us whole. So that's the purpose of sex. This is my third point. Sex is not about sex. Sex is not about sex. Look what Paul says here about marriage and sex. That this mystery is profound. I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. Whoa. Like that's, this mystery is profound, that's a mega mysterion. It refers to Christ and the church. What's going on here? Y'all, sex in Ephesians 5 implies that the physical union of husband and wife and all the things that go along with that, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, that in the, one of the closest moments that a human can have, that is to, what it is to feel like what it is to be in heaven. That's as close as you're going to get in this side of the grave. That in the moment of orgasm with another person, that you lose yourself in that person. And in the pleasure of experiencing yourself with that person in the most profound way humanly possible. And you're getting a glimmer, just a, a bare glimmer, but a glimmer nonetheless of what heaven is like. That the reason that sex can feel like your ultimate end at times and be such a powerful driving force in your life is because the true direction that it's driving at is the thing that you were made for which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Listen to what I'm, I'm saying here. That heaven, if you were to be there, would constantly feel far better, by far, than sex. And the implication is, though, that this perfect sex, if you could have it, that sex at its best is a reflection of the only reality that truly matters, which is Jesus with His bride, the church. You see, sex was never intended to be about itself. It was always meant to point away from itself. That's anticipatory. That it points to the future where Jesus comes down and gathers his bride, his church to himself. That's as though God is saying in sex, I want you to know the depths of intimacy and communion and joy and beauty. I want you to know what that's about. And what's coming and what's waiting for you. And so here's sex. But y'all, we're all sexually broken people. We've been sinned against sexually. We have sexually sinned ourselves. And for those who have been deeply sinned against sexually, you know this better than anyone, don't you? You know the power of sex to drive to the very core of you absolute shame and sadness. And how hard it is to heal from that. That sexual sin often for us, even if we're not the perpetrator of it, will feel like the unforgivable sin. Because the way it will hammer us in our most delicate places. 
You think about what the, how the Bible is holding out healing for our sexuality here. That just as Christ is loving and committing to himself to his bride in this redemptive way, that sex in the covenant of marriage can be redemptive too. And I say this carefully because we in the West have a tendency to idolize sex. But sex in the context of marriage where you're known and enjoyed and seen in the deepest way possible, and both body and soul where someone says, I am totally here for you. I'm all the way here for you. I want all of you and I want you to have all of me. That that can be deeply, deeply healing to our most intimate wounds. It can be deeply healing for it. Um, before we got married, probably a, a month or so before we got married, I was talking to an older guy who's probably in his 40s. And he and his wife had, I guess, three kids. And so I was kind of in this conversation where I'm, with him where I was just like, so, like, got any advice? You know, about to go on the honeymoon. And, uh, <laughs> and he looks at me and he just says, like, just deadpan flatly, like, I don't envy you at all. Like, the, the sex that I'm having with my wife now is so much better than what you're going to have. And the reason for that was, he's, he went on to explain, was that in learning her body and her learning his body, and in going through uh, the, the difficulty, the sensitivity, sometimes the pain of it, but like persevering in that and loving each other in that and seeing each other in sometimes like, you know, what could almost be the most embarrassing moments of your life when you're naked with this other person. And loving them in that, that sex with them had become really good and really healing. And it was this amazing experience. And it's something that, as he'd learned it, had actually healed him and made him more of a man and made his wife more of a woman and made them together more of a couple. You see, for all of us, we all deeply desire that assurance of safety and constancy in our sex lives. And then when we get that, we cannot help but be healed. And when someone says, I am always for you, and they mean it, and they are always there for you, that heals wounds that we didn't even know we had. That heals wounds we never thought we could be healed from. And to the degree that it happens in your life, you will be able to understand what Paul is talking about here with Christ and his church. See, as we read this, this is what I'm afraid for us. Our tendency here might be to say, so I'll only understand Jesus when I start to understand sex. No, no, no. Look at what Paul is actually saying. That you will only really understand sex and its power when you start to understand Jesus and his love. You'll only understand these things when you start to understand who Jesus is and how he loves us. So I want to end by saying this, that if you're prudish, then large parts of the Bible are going to make you feel very uncomfortable. The Bible celebrates sexuality in the most beautiful of ways. This is going to make some of you uncomfortable, but God is saying to you in sex, you think that this is great. Just wait until you see my face. Wait until you see how much I love you. And I know that this sounds crazy to some of you, but if you are in Jesus, then one day you will look back on the act of sex and say, I would never go back to having that because everything that I wanted in it, everything that I thought it would give me is given me in a fuller way in Christ and in knowing Christ. Does that sound irreverent to you or inappropriate to you? Look, y'all, the God of the Bible is so pro-sex that he says that I gave this to you because it's not about itself. So you can see what ultimately it is about because there's a day coming when you'll see sex is no more than just a banquet. And God himself is the feast.
Sex is like this appetizer, and that God has given you all of himself. Is there space carved out in your spiritual DNA for a God that relates to his people like that? Y'all, I don't have any idea what all of this means, but it's got to be pretty good, right? And if you can walk away from this tonight thinking, yeah, that would be not just pretty good, but amazing, then do you know what you did? You heard the gospel. That on a topic where you feel on such a deep level that this must be an experience that has the capacity to be both wonderful and life-giving, the good news here is that the reality it is pointing to is even better than you could imagine. It's about Jesus loving his people. And at the same time, on a topic that can be so fraught with fear and anxiety and shame and deep brokenness, there's assurance that it will be redeemed past all of our wildest imaginations. And isn't that the gospel? That the more broken, that you're more broken than you could possibly understand, but then Jesus, you're more loved than you could possibly imagine. And that what you have and what you will experience will so he- thoroughly heal your brokenness, it'll be like it was never there at all. Isn't that what we all want? Especially in this. And so that's my invitation to you tonight. To find in Christ the experience of a person who's so mind-blowingly awesome. He not only rivals sex, but he, he is truly what sex is pointing to. Believe me? I hope so. Because that's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that all of our longings... All of our needs are found in you and in your son. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take those longings and those needs to you. I pray you'd help us to use our sexuality rightly. The way that you, you set it up. God, so that we would truly know ourselves and truly know you. So we could avoid brokenness and pain in this world where we, we can. And Lord, so that we can find healing with another person. God, that's what we long for in so many ways. Will you help us to do that? Will you guide us in that? Will you help us to do that for one another? In your son's name we pray. Amen.